I want to start off reading just a little excerpt, excerpt from this book. Uh, it's called Everything Sad is Untrue, A True Story. And uh, what caught my attention about this book, funny enough, I heard uh, an advertisement for it on NPR. And, uh, but what caught my attention about it is it's about uh, this guy's mom who lived in Iran. And not only did she live in Iran, but she was a Shiite Muslim, and uh, she was what they call a Saeed. So uh, if, it, just to give you a little bit of background on that, she was a doctor with a lot of power. The Shiites believe that, that uh, religious authority comes through the bloodline. So if you, were, if you could prove you were related to Muhammad somehow, you are, have more authority and more power in Islam. And she was Saeed, which meant that she had the blood. She could prove that, that her lineage came through Muhammad. So, so she was this very powerful, very wealthy doctor in Iran. And then her life changed when she went to England. And through a, a series of miracles, and I say miracles because, you know, if it's just something odd that can be explained away, it's not a miracle. A miracle is something that you cannot explain, but defi by definition, it should not happen. Science can't explain it. And what happens is, actually, uh, her, her daughter ha sees someone. Uh, someone ends up just miraculously appearing in her room, having a conversation with her, and then disappearing. And her daughter comes out of the room and, and starts to explain it, and someone says, you just saw Jesus. And her daughter says, I did. Uh, and then her daughter becomes a Christian. So her mom is looking at her and saying, no, no, I got to go back to Iran with a daughter who's a Christian. And the penalty can, for conversion is death. So she's looking at her daughter and she's thinking, she's going to die. We're going to go back to Iran and someone's going to ask her a question. And she's going to say that she believes in Jesus now. And they're going to kill her. And so she starts to confront her daughter on this, and eventually she comes to know Jesus too, knowing full well that on the trip back to Iran, she could face death. And so we're in this point now where he's telling this conversion story, and, and he says, when I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds and the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned. Just to give you a little bit more background on this, not only is she powerful, but her, her dad was a governor who owned lots of land. After she converted, they, the secret police discovered her. They uh, threatened to kill her first, and then they kidnapped her. I, I don't know yet how she escapes, but she escapes, and they end up in Oklahoma as refugees. So he's explaining this from the viewpoint of a refugee in Oklahoma, all right? So, he, and he's been explaining the story to, to adults. And so that's where we pick up at, right? All the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore, she became a Christian. All the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? 
It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins, and thousands of acres of Persian countryside, and 10 years of education to get a medical degree, and all your family, and a home, and the best cream puffs, and all of Jolfa, and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God, and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. That or my mom is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake. But she doesn't think so. She had all that wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was Saeed, and she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places people hate refugees. With a husband who hits harder than a second-degree black belt because he's a third-degree black belt. And she'll tell you it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why my mom converted, since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong. But you can't make my mom agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The whole story hinges on it. My mom, who was such a fierce Muslim that she marched for the revolution, she studied the Koran the way very few Muslims do. She read the Bible and knew in her heart that it was true. When you come to know Jesus, it changes everything. He changes everything. He redefines you. He redefines your life. He redefines how you view everything. We've been studying this series, He is Greater Than. As we've been walking through Mark and we're looking at this idea that Jesus is God. And when you come to know God, He changes everything. And that's what we're going to get into today as we look through Mark. We'll start off in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, and we'll work all the way through the rest of the chapter. There's a couple different stories going on here, but I think this is the main thrust of, of the rest of the chapter 3, that Jesus changes everything. In particular, he changes us. He changes our relationships. He changes how we view the world. He changes everything. So we pick up in verse 7. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan from around Tyre and Sidon. And so what's going on in this first chapter, for, or this first paragraph from 7 all the way through 12 is it's going to be a summary of the events that are occurring. So this isn't one particular event that Mark is writing about. It's, it's a summary of all that's going to happen while he's around in what's called the Great Galilean Ministry. So Jesus ministered all over Israel, but he, he spent a specific amount of time 
in Galilee, in this northern region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And so he's giving us a little summary of here. And what's happening as Jesus ministers is that great crowds come from all over. And he emphasizes, well, first Galilee. Well, that's kind of an obvious one, right? Because that's where Jesus is. But then Judea, which is low, which is from the south. It's actually higher in elevation, but it's south. And it's where the more traditional Jews would be. And then he mentions Jerusalem, which is a city in Judea. But it's such an important city that it has to have its own mention. So even the Jews from Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of Judaism, the most religious elite lived there. Even those Jews were coming. And then Edomia, which is a little bit lower, and that's, that's just a change from the Edomites, who is Esau's brother, right? So he settled the land just south, and, and that becomes Edomia. And then beyond the Jordan, which is the east side, that's going to be Perea, and that's going to be more settled by, by Gentiles. And then you've got also Tyre and Sidon, which is north, and that is also more Gentiles. And so we see this picture that Jesus is ministering in Galilee, but people are coming from all over, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. His fame has exceeded even John the Baptist's fame. His fame is so big now. He's the biggest name in Israel. And why did they come? Because they heard all that he was doing. And so we've already talked about all the miracles, or some of the miracles that he's done. And, and the word of his miracles is beginning to spread, but also because of John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist had immediate popularity. People flocked to him already because of the the circumstances surrounding his birth. But then beyond that, what does John do when he sees Jesus? He says, don't follow me, follow him. He's greater than me. And John the Baptist steps away. And so, so all of this, the miracles, John the Baptist, it's all pointing towards Jesus. And everybody in Israel is like, we got to check this guy out. So they're all coming from all around because they heard what he was doing. So they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So just think about this. This isn't a one-time event. This is happening over and over again, right? People love Jesus so much, but they're also seeing what Jesus is doing for them. If you had a disfigurement or a disease or something that had plagued you your entire life and all you wanted to do was be cured because you were considered an outcast, you were considered a second-class citizen, no one wanted you around, and you saw that this guy could cure you, you also might want to push against him, knowing that just touching him could change your life. And so they're crowd- if you picture this, he's up against the Sea of Galilee and they're crowding around in him, not because they're angry, but because they just want to touch him. They just want to see him. And so they're crowding around him and they're crowding so closely that they might actually physically crush him. So he's like, get the boat ready because this could happen again. Get the boat ready. I might have to jump on the boat and I'll preach from the boat. So that's what's going on, right? So he's, he says, get the boat ready for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And so that's the, that's the picture we're getting. But that's not all that happens. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make 
him known. So there's a few points that we have to address really quickly here. One is that they fell down before him. This is a sign of submission. So these unclean spirits, the, these people that were possessed by demons, the demons recognized who Jesus is, the creator of everything. And they fell down in submission to him, knowing that he was greater. Although they were in rebellion against him, when they came face to face with him, they fell down in submission. So they submit to him, and not only do they submit to him, they make an announcement. You are the Son of God. They recognize who he is. They recognize that he is God come in the flesh, the maker of heaven and earth. They fall down in obedience to him, and they make this announcement. And then he strictly orders them not to make him known. And this is what a lot of theologians call the messianic secret. And I know a lot of people get kind of confused, like, why does Jesus always tell people, don't tell others? And the messianic secret is, is uh, the reason why. Jesus, uh, he is the Messiah, but he's not what they thought of when they thought of Messiah. For the second temple Jew who had suffered uh, under the Romans, and not just the Romans, but the Greeks. For 400 years, they have been oppressed. For 400 years, other people have come and ruled over them. For 400 years, they've never felt freedom. But they've been occupied. And not just occupied by someone who's like, yeah, we, we'll have your territory. But occupied by people who wanted to abuse them and use them. And so when they thought of Messiah, they thought of a political deliverer. So Jesus purposely doesn't go around saying, I'm the Messiah. He purposely doesn't go around talking using messianic language. And he does it for a couple different reasons, or because he understands that they have misunderstood what Messiah is, and that's going, if he uses the term Messiah, it's going to give, it's going to make a couple things very difficult for him. One is that they are going to try to force him to be the Messiah they want him to be. And we actually see this in John. In John chapter 6, we see it, that they, they take him and they try to force him. Well, what do they see the Messiah as being? The political deliverer. So if they force him to be the Messiah that they want him to be, what are they going to start? An insurrection. A revolution. They're going to go to Caesar's palace with their fists in the air, ready to overthrow the government. But that's not what Jesus came for. He came for something so much greater. He didn't come just to free Rome. He came to free all of us from our own wicked hearts. So he knows that he needs to avoid that. So he doesn't use messianic language. But number two is, eventually Jesus will die. He knows it. He knows he's going to end up on the cross. And he wants to make it very clear that he's not an insurrectionist. He wants to make it very clear that the reason why he's going to the cross is not because he started a revolution, but because he's going to pay the price for our sins. 
And if he uses the messianic language, then Pontius Pilate has a case against him. Then when he stands in front of Pontius Pilate, he can say, oh, clearly you are an insurrectionist. You deserve to die. But because he never used that language, when he stands in front of Pontius Pilate, what does Pontius Pilate say? I see no fault in this man. He's committed no crime. So he's setting it all up so that it is very clear he's not a revolutionary. He's not a political deliverer. He is a personal savior. That's the key behind the messianic secret. So that's our summary of what's going to happen. And then he starts to break us down and give us some stories. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. All right, so what we've got going on here is we see Christ's authority that he calls to them, he appoints them, and then we get later on that he appoints them again. And this is the idea that Jesus is taking the 12 to, be, to become apostles. The 12. The apostles. So, the term apostle just simply means sent one. Alright? So, we see that throughout Scripture that there are some apostles, and they might be an apostle, but they might not be the apostles. The apostles always reference to the 12, and here what we see is that Jesus called a specific 12 for a specific purpose. So, first of all, he appointed them that they might be with him. So, we're gonna run, when you get into Acts, you'll run into some other apostles that were never with him. They're just simply messengers. But the 12 have a special authority. They have a special ability. So, he calls them first to be with him. He's going to teach them. He's going to train them. He's going to disciple them in a special way. And he's doing it that he might send them out. So he's going to disciple them and equip them that he then might send them out. And there's going to be a twofold purpose in the sending out. To preach and cast out demons. So he's going to disciple them so that he might send them out to teach or to preach and to cast out demons. And along with that, he's going to give them authority. So these apostles are a little bit different from just a regular sent out one. These apostles walk with the authority of Jesus Christ. So that's the difference between just a regular apostle, someone who's been sent, and the apostles. These guys have the authority of Christ with them. So he appointed these, the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother James, to whom he gave the name Bonagi, the sons of Thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So out of all of these names, there's a lot going on here, but I just want to look at two names for a second. These two names are Matthew, who's also known as Levi. We saw Levi a little while ago. He was a tax collector, also known as a toll collector. Essentially, he worked for the Romans. He was considered by Jews a traitor. You're working for the oppressor. You're working for those guys who use and abuse us. You're worse than them. You're a traitor. 
So there's Levi, Matthew, and then there's Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were these religiously strict Jews. In fact, the Zealots later on will declare war against the Romans. They'll set up different camps. They'll aggravate the Romans. And eventually the Romans will come with full force and destroy Jerusalem and the temple because of the Zealots. So the Zealots were religious and they hated the traitors. Check it out, though. Matthew, the traitor. Simon, the zealot. Coming together as part of the apostles. And to be an apostle, these guys could no longer hate each other. They could no longer view each other as the enemy. Now they're working together. There's only one thing that could do that, that could take these two enemies and make them friends. And that's Jesus Christ. And he gives them a new mission. You are no longer here to make your own life comfortable. You are no longer here to fight off the oppressor. Now you're here to spread the good news that Jesus has redeemed you from your own wicked heart. When we meet Jesus, he changes everything in our life. It is easy for us to give lip service, to say we've known G- we know Jesus. Do you still hold on to hate towards an enemy? Jesus should be turning that hate in your heart to love for that enemy. So we see that Jesus changes how we identify ourselves and how we relate with others. And then we switch gears a little bit to, uh, to a story that seems almost out of place with his family. And then, and then we've got this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then it switches back to his family. And a lot of times when we read this, we get these, these two incidences with his family and we separate them out because they're separated by something else, right? But this is what we would call an inclusio. And so really we should, we should read the first story about his family coming to him. And the last story in chapter 3 about his family still outside, we should read that as one story. But Mark inserts this story of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit first for a particular reason. But let's go ahead and let's study this. So typically what we do is we separate out. I'm going to read the family story as one story. So we'll read 20 through 21, and then we'll skip down 31 through 35, just as one so we get kind of a feel for it. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my, brother, my mother and brothers. Forever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. And so that's how it really, that's how that story really goes. But in the midst of all of this, he inserts this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, and I think he does it for a reason. So let's break it down. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again. So we see once again that, you know, this is, this is the story. This is the flow of the great Galilean ministry. He goes out, he preaches the gospel, then he comes back to Capernaum. And while he's there, the crowds continue to gather at his home. And while they're there, they're so packed in tight that he can't even eat. Think about that for a second. What does it take to eat? Just a little bit of movement of arms, right? They're so packed in there that they can't even, they can't even get their arms up to their mouth to eat. And when his family heard it, so, so they're all packed in there tight, and his family has heard about everything that's going on. This is bringing us all the way back to uh, verse 8, when, when the great crowds heard, so they're starting to gather around. So they heard it. They've heard the same thing. They've heard that all that Jesus is doing... They've heard about the great crowds that are following. But more importantly, I think, they've heard about who is coming. They've heard about the outcasts. They've heard about the tax collectors, the traders. They've heard about the shady company Jesus is keeping, right? So they went to seize him. This word for seize is krateo, and it means to arrest, but not just to arrest, but in a hostile way. They're here for a hostile takeover with Jesus. They don't trust what he's doing. And why are they trying to seize him? Because they're saying he is out of his mind. And you think about it for a second here. Mary's had a hard life already. She's gone through some stuff. She's been called an outcast herself. And now Jesus is hanging out with outcasts. But Mary knew that he was to be the Messiah. I mean, clearly she would remember the angel that visited her. Clearly she would remember all the circumstances going on with that, right? But remember, for a second temple Jew, what the Messiah was supposed to be. The political deliverer, not the personal savior. And so, in Mary's mind, what are you doing hanging out with all the outcasts? They don't have any power. You're not going to overthrow Rome when you hang out with those guys. You need to make friends with the Pharisees in Jerusalem. You need to be up there hobnobbing with those guys that are going to be powerful, that are going to bring together the armies. You need to make yourself friends with powerful allies. What are you doing? And eventually this has got to grind on her enough that she's thinking, he doesn't know what he's doing anymore. He's supposed to be the Messiah, but he's not doing the Messiah thing. He's hanging out with the prostitutes. The tax collectors, the traders, those people that can't even walk, they don't make for an army. He's got to be out of his mind, right? So Jesus, who they think is the Messiah, who Mary knows in her heart is the Messiah, begins to become a liability for the family. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're hurting our relationships back in Nazareth. We're outcasts again. We just made our way back into the synagogue. They won't let us back in the synagogue now because of you. 
So they try to seize him. They begin to believe that he's a lunatic. And then we get the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem, the religious hub, were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. Both those terms right there just are used interchangeably to reference Satan. So he's possessed by Satan and by the prince of demons, by Satan himself, he casts out demons. And he called to them and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And I want to take a second out for really quickly, and we're going to leave the text for a second. Because I think this is important for us to take right now. It is such an important piece of wisdom that a nation that is divided cannot stand. And what he's doing actually is, specifically, I think he's referencing uh, the division of Israel. So if you remember that story, Solomon built this great nation, one of the most powerful nations the world had seen. And then after where he dies, his, his son takes over uh, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is a fool. And, and some people from 10 of the tribes come to Rehoboam and they say, hey, your dad made us work really hard and we built this awesome empire. Can you, get a, can you give us a break? Cut us a little bit of slack. And what Rehoboam says to him is that oh, when my father whipped you with scorpions, or sorry, with, with whips, I'll whip you with scorpions. And essentially what he's saying is my father is nothing compared to me. And so what do the other ten tribes do? They say, okay, we'll start our own country then. They start their own country. Now, I'm not judging whether that was right or not. In fact, I think God ordained it. But there was a price to be paid for that division. And Israel went from being one of the most powerful nations in the world to within a couple of years being invaded and absolutely decimated by a weak Egypt. There is a price that is paid when a nation is divided. And oftentimes what we want to do in our sinful bent is we want to look at the other side and we want to point our finger at the other side and say, you're the one that's dividing. Why are you being so divisive? Can't you see how you're dividing this nation? And we point our finger and what is that doing but just dividing us all the more? We need to be asking the question, how can we, as Christ followers, unite? Unite our nation. Let's quit being divisive. Let's quit pointing fingers. And let's own our own mistakes and say, I'm sorry. I'm not going to get too into that because that leaves the text. But it is something important for us to understand. A nation divided against itself cannot stand. And if we don't learn how to be united in this nation, we will not stand as a nation. And there is a heavy, heavy price 
that will be paid. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And essentially what what this breaks down to is Jesus is making... uh, a very logical argument. So what Jesus is saying is, uh, you know, the accusation is, Jesus, you're getting your power to cast out demons by Satan himself. So his response is this. If I did this through the power of Satan, then it would result in the self-destruction of Satan's kingdom. But we see that Satan's kingdom is not destroyed. This has not occurred. Therefore, I cannot be doing this through Satan's power. It's got to be a different power. And if it's a different power, then I am stronger than Satan. That's the argument he's making. I am stronger than Satan. Therefore, I have come to set Satan's captives free. That's the argument Jesus is making here. And then he gives a strict warning. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So I've known many people that have been afraid that they have committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say, I, I want to give you some encouragement. If you're afraid that you have committed that sin, good chances are you haven't committed that sin. So let's break it down and figure out what that sin is. So what is the accusation? The accusation is that he is committing all these marvelous acts that authenticate his claim, right? So it's these miracles. Remember, by definition, a miracle is something that that should not be able to happen. Like Jesus looking at someone and saying, arise and walk. And they arise and walk. Someone being blind from birth and Jesus gives them their sight back. That can't, by, by science, that cannot happen. That's why it's a miracle. So Jesus is doing these miracles to authenticate the claim. The claim is that he is God come in the flesh. And what do the Pharisees do? They look at him and they say, all these things that you're doing to authenticate that claim, that's from Satan himself. That's the accusation. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To to witness what Jesus is doing, to be an eyewitness to his claims and the authentication of his claims that the Holy Spirit was doing through him, the miracles that the Holy Spirit was doing through Jesus, and to say, well, that's Satan. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we see that very clearly, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Mark even clarifies it for us. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to take what Jesus did and to say that was the work of Satan himself. So we've got his family. Let's call them a lunatic. And now we've got the Pharisees or the scribes, the religious leaders that are calling him a liar. But what is his claim? His claim is that he is Lord. This is what C.S. Lewis would call the trilemma. The trilemma is that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is what he said he is, and that is the Lord 
God come in the flesh. So if he's a lunatic, then he can't do these miracles, right? If he's out of his mind, then that guy that he healed wouldn't actually be healed. Therefore, we can cross out this idea that he's a lunatic. And if he's a liar, then he once again couldn't do these miracles. It would all just be fake. And we have to come to this conclusion in our own hearts. Is Jesus a lunatic? And there are a lot of people in this world that will say, I don't believe that Jesus was God come in the flesh, but he was a really good man. He lived a really good life that we should emulate. But that's, that's, that's false thinking, because if Jesus wasn't God come in the flesh, then he was either a lunatic or a liar. And the problem is that he was an evil man. To make others believe that you're God when you're not God is an evil thing to do. So he's either a lunatic, a liar, or he is who he said he is. God come in the flesh. He is our Lord and Savior. And we each have to wrestle with that idea. But when you come to terms with him being Lord, it changes your life. And it changes everything about you. And his mother and his brothers came. So remember, they think he's insane, so they want to take him by force. But the room is too crowded. They can't get inside the room. So they're coming to take him, and they sent to him and called him. So since they can't get in, now they're calling out to him, Hey, Jesus, you need to come out here. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And what we have here, Jesus isn't denouncing. He's not saying that that blood family is a bad thing. But what he's doing is saying, Hey, when you come to know me as Lord, When you come to submit your life to me, so much changes that even family changes. How you view the world, how you view relationships, everything changes because you have come to to meet the maker of it all. It reminds me so much of this guy's mom. She is poor now. People spit on her on buses. She is a refugee in places people hate refugees with a husband who hits harder than a second degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. And she'll tell you, it's worth it. Jesus is better. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The whole story hinges on it. When you come to meet Jesus as your Savior, your life gets flipped upside down. Relationships get rearranged. 
people who once you thought of as enemies, you can now see as image bearers of God. People you once hated, you can now see the infinite love of God also rests on them. Where you once wanted to create division, you can now speak with grace. Because Jesus is better. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you didn't leave us to our evil, wicked, sinful ways, but you came to this earth. Not just to show us a better way, not just to be the example that we need, but to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could live a life that is changed, flipped upside down, that you change our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that as we go and interact with people in this world, you would help us to speak with grace, with truth, with love, and that we would show the world how we can be united. Even though we were once thought of as enemies, we can now be friends. In your name we pray. Amen.